Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All right, let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all sin and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Andy, I hand it over to you to introduce our speaker this evening. Thanks, Father. Our speaker this evening is the president of Catholic Answers. He writes and lectures on the lives of Catholic heroes and villains and has addressed audiences across the U.S. and in Europe. Christopher Czech served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the Marine Corps, after which he served for 19 years as vice president of the Rockford Institute. In 2012, he joined Catholic Answers as director of development, and he was named president in 2015. Please join me in welcoming Christopher Check. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much. Let's start with a story. On Christmas Eve, in the year of our Lord, 1643, a two-masted coaling vessel, or as the French called them, a collier, set sail from Falmouth, Cornwall, which is on the southwestern tip of England. The vessel's destiny was Brittany, which is the northwestern, most northwestern point of France. The ship's captain, whether he knew it or not, carried a cargo vastly more precious than the coal that filled his holds. Letting go anchor, Early on Christmas morning, a short distance off the coast of the fishing village of Saint-Paul-de-Lyon, the ship's crew lowered a small rowboat, which left on the beach a man whose lined countenance and ragged raiment suggested many more years than the mere 36 that he had walked the earth. With all haste, the man made his way off the beach to the nearest home, where two men, expecting Catholic refugee from Ireland or England, where the English Civil War was currently underway, were astounded to hear perfect French. Is there a church close by where I can hear mass, asked the man with an undisguised eagerness. Yes, there is, and not far up the road, a monastery of Franciscans. Mass begins soon. And giving the man a fresh hat and scarf, the two men pointed the stranger away and told him to return for breakfast when mass was over. The man raced up the road, 
to the monastery where with tears in his eyes, he assisted at his first mass in almost two years. Describing his reception of our Lord and Holy Communion, he wrote later, it was at this moment that I began to live once more. It was then that I tasted the sweetness of my deliverance. Joyfully devouring breakfast later at the home of his fisherman hosts, the man could not conceal his hands. His fingers, that is what fingers he yet possessed, were badly maimed. Some were stumps that ended at the first knuckle. Some had no fingernails. The thumb of his left hand was altogether missing. He could conceal neither his hands nor his identity. The young daughters of the household gave him a few coins that they had saved. A merchant from the village gave him a horse and pointed him 200 miles to Reims, home of a college of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. Arriving on the eve of Epiphany, the man knocked on the door of the seminary asking for the rector. The guest master said to him, he is preparing to offer mass. Please tell him I have news from the Jesuit missions in New France. The rector came with all haste and after a brief exchange asked the ragged man, do you know Father Isaac Jogues? He is a prisoner of the Iroquois. Is he dead? Is he alive? I know him well. He is alive. I am he. Now, Father Isaac Jogues, who had suffered capture and torture and every form of unspeakable humiliation and indignity for more than a year at the hands of Mohawk savages, was for four months feted by the royalty of France. Pope Urban VIII, the Pope who had canonized Job's fathers, Loyola and Xavier, the man who had patronized the Jesuit reductions in Latin America, the man who had patiently tolerated the vanities of Galileo, now joyfully granted Father Isaac a dispensation once again to offer Mass, though he lacked a complete set of the canonical digits, right? Forefinger and thumb. Indignum esset Christi, martyrum Christi non bibere sanguinem, he wrote. It would be shameful that a martyr of Christ not be allowed to drink the blood of Christ. But Father Isaac, joyful again to ascend, ad altari dei, to the altar of God, desired in his heart to return to New France. 
to Canada. To the native peoples of the St. Lawrence Valley, to whom he desired more than anything to bring the salvation of Jesus Christ, knowing with certainty that his return would bring to him a brutal martyrdom. Isaac Jog is one of the North American martyrs, also called the Canadian martyrs. Canonized in 1930 by Pope Pius XI, they, we will look at their story this evening. I have divided our discussion as follows. A quick look at the age in which the story takes place, the story of the North American martyrs. That is the first half of the 17th century. A quick look at the Jesuits and their role in 17th century Europe. A look at the mission to New France, uh, the beginning of the colonization of New France, Jacques Cartier, Samuel Champlain. I know we all learned about these extraordinary figures in fourth grade, but we'll uh, give a little more detail, but a quick review. Uh, some things about the native population of New France, including the Iroquois, Confederacy, which was the principal political organization of Indians, uh, but also the Algonquins, the Hurons, uh, and also the habits, the morals, the practices of the natives of New France. Uh, a look at the beginning of the mission. In other words, the formal efforts on the part of the Kingdom of France to bring Christianity to the people of the St. Lawrence Valley and what we call the Great Lakes region. A few things about the principal source for the story, that is the Jesuit relations or relation, uh, an overview of the eight North American martyrs or Canadian martyrs, and then a closer look at the story of three of the eight. Uh, Jean de Brebeuf, who's who was the giant of them, uh, Isaac Jog, whose story we began this evening, and a lesser known, but I think someone who has a lesson for us, uh, Father Noel Chavanel. And then we'll close with a few things to take away. Okay, so 17th century, 17th century Europe. This is an extraordinary time to be alive. Father Hezekiah has mentioned the modern, we are in the modern age in this time in which we're speaking. That is, we make this distinction. I know that the Institute is careful to do this, but it's good to underscore. We make this distinction between ancient, medieval, and modern, right? And modern beginning really with the Renaissance, the Reformation, but we are well, or what we call the Reformation, the Protestant Rebellion, we're well into the modern age at this time. So 17th century Europe, uh, it's hard to overstate, and certainly, by the way, with the perspective of history, what an extraordinary age the first half of the 17th century was. We tend to be impressed with the technologies of our own age, but this was an extraordinary, this early part of the 17th century was an age of genuine scientific discovery. 
the first part of the 17th century gives us, as far as the astronomical world is concerned, the extraordinary discoveries of Galileo, Johannes Kepler, confirming those things that uh, Copernicus only speculated about. We know Copernicus never really had any, any, any evidence of his ideas, but it's Galileo and Kepler and men like him who find him. Um, Harvey, the Englishman, uh, William, is mapping the human circulatory system. Uh, the first map of the human circulatory system. Evangelista Torricelli invents the barometer to uh, measure atmospheric pressure. Marine Marcin is writing the laws of vibration, making uh, not just important contributions to the natural sciences, to physics, but to what? Music theory as well. Uh, by the way, Marcin working off of work that Galileo's father had, uh, had done in, in the world of, of music theory. The list of scientists goes on and on from this age, but also the list of great writers. Uh, Shakespeare, in the first half of the 17th century, writes his very best work. Winter's Tale, Othello, Macbeth, Hamlet, The Tempest, and the greatest of all, King Lear, uh, these come to life on the stage at England's Old Globe during this time. In Spain, the, the, the old man who, as a young man, had shown so much valor at the Battle of Lepanto, uh, Miguel Cervantes, writes his El Ingenioso Hidalgo Don Quixote de La Mancha, or the ingenious nobleman Mr. Don Quixote of La Mancha. And de Castro brings his Del Cid, to the stage and whatever we think of him and, and his religion, but nonetheless a great poet, John Milton pens and publishes Paradise Lost. Gustavus Adolphus is writing modern military theory during this time that soldiers and professional soldiers still study to this day. Uh, Rene Descartes and John Locke begin to peddle their very bad philosophical ideas that further turn man's gaze from God and more towards self. Uh, Jacques uh, Bassuet, right, is studying at this time at Cardinal Richelieu's academy. Jacques Bassuet, who would become the court preacher to Louis XIV and one of the, and perhaps the greatest theologian of the age. In sculpture, uh, Bernini, Moderno, uh, it, 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 is, it is an extraordinary time. And in the middle of this intellectual life, thrill, excitements, uh, are, are, are the Jesuits. Uh, a couple more things. This is still an age when there is a common language. And by that I don't mean for everyday commerce or uh, discourse. But a scientist from Switzerland was able to communicate with a scientist from uh, Italy because everybody knew Latin at the time. So Europe is still bound by the Latin language, by the Latin language. It's a hard thing for us to get our imaginations around, but it's, it, it's important. At either end of this event, uh, of this period, are two major conflicts. The, Thirty Years' War, 
six to eight million casualties, 1618 to 1648, a war that evolves out of the Protestant rebellion and, 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 and perhaps the most brutal religious war in history. And then the English Civil War, which is sort of a, a, a smaller version of this, Oliver Cromwell's rebellion against Charles I and Charles II, 1642 to 1651. So in the middle of all this, we have this extraordinary group of men, the Jesuits. And I know all of you have some knowledge uh, of who the Jesuits were, but it, 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 bears, it bears repeating because, or, or going over, because these men were the best of the best. Uh, so the Jesuits, founded in 1539 by a Basque soldier who finds Jesus at the business end of a cannonball in Pamplona in 1521, uh, Ignatius Loyola. Loyola intends to restrict the size of the Jesuits to 60. That's how he leads. <laughs> in his imagination, this thing was going to be. Uh, God had a different plan. By 1615, there were 13,000 Jesuits. So the, the, the thing had grown. And these were, they, they, were the, they were the shock troops, if you will, of the Counter-Reformation. But, it, but it's wrong simply to think of them as, of, as masters of doctrine and protectors of doctrine. So much more than that, these, these were the great intellectual minds of the age. In fact, it's, uh, it, we hear so often the church's anti-science and that case of Galileo, which I know I've spoken about for the Institute in the past. Um, we hear so often the church's anti-science. The Jesuits at the Roman college who were contemporaries of Galileo were, were gobbling up his telescopes and confirming his discoveries in, in the sky. So these men were not anti-science. They were at the, the forefront of learning. And as a consequence, Jesuit colleges grew during this period dramatically. Uh, so there were 525 Jesuit colleges by 1645. Clermont, Lafleche, Rouen, some of the famous ones. But these men were, the, were, the, were really the inventors of modern education. And they, they had their system, their ratio studiorum, but there's no better formation. I mean, you have to go back to the ancient world, uh, maybe the scholastics in the 14th century or 13th, uh, or 13th century, but really no better formation. And the, and the whole man, drama. The Jesuits wrote plays, poetry. They wrote poems, art, music, philosophy, the physical sciences, or what at the time they called natural philosophy, what we call physics, chemistry, astronomy. These men were masters of these fields. And, and this is important for our story, languages. And I'm dwelling on this because I I want you to have a sense, insofar as I can convey it, or insofar as we can get our imaginations around it, the quality of men who went from France, you know, really the, the, the best of the best, where they could, any one of these men could have been the, the rector of a seminary, or uh, a bishop, or enjoyed a, a, 
and I don't mean enjoyed in a bad way, but enjoyed a very good life at the center of intellectual discourse and helping students and forming seminarians. And they gave this up. These men were capital intellects, capital intellects. To get a sense of the story of the North American martyrs, that is a key point. You take away just a few things, take that away. These were, I mean, I, I can't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe it. Imagine a guy like uh, Bill Gates, but he's a fervent Catholic or something. I, even that is a poor analogy because he doesn't have the breadth of learning. And all of this, all of their learning, all of their quality is undergirded by the interior life the sacramental and the spiritual life, right? The spiritual exercises that Ignatius devised, wrote, enforced. Why? Internal reform is necessary to mission, to the success of mission. And the, I mean, it, all, all of you know this, it's in Dom Chotard, writes all the apostle, the book that we use here at Catholic Answers, there is no apostolic work without interior life. No apostolic work without interior life. So you have these capital intellects formed spiritually in the greatest humility. And these are the men. And they come to flower in this extraordinary time of scientific discovery, flower and literature, art, sculpture, Murillo, I forgot to mention Murillo, Velasquez, but also this age of exploration, this age of exploration. And we think of this age of exploration as an event uh, in, in, you know, from our fourth grade history um, as men wanting to have high adventure, to have capital gain, to get gold from Latin America or Mexico, to, and it's true uh, to get beaver pelts from the St. Lawrence Valley, which is also true, but informing the hearts of Champlain, of Cartier before him, of, of, of the French and the Spanish coming to the New World was bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the New World. It's a fact. It is a fact. So we have this age of exploration meeting the age of Jesuit missionary fervor. Within 50 years of the founding of the Jesuits, 188 martyrs, 188 martyrs. So we think, my goodness, these men of extraordinary intellect, and yet almost 200 martyrs in 50 years. These guys were serious. They were serious. Okay. Enough on the Jesuits. Well, not enough, but <laughs> suffice. New France. So why does Cartier go to New France? He's looking for fur, especially beaver, fish. There's a big fish industry. Of course, they salt it to bring it back. Um, also a passage to India. Cartier makes four voyages between 1534 and 1543. This is a quote from him though, among his motives to make known the most sacred name of God and our Holy Mother Church. So that's the part that you didn't hear in fourth grade. 
He dies in 1557. He founds the colony of Quebec, but he dies in 1557. And the colony is abandoned for 60 years. I don't think it's called Quebec when Cartier is there. There's some dispute about that. But the next man on the scene, the next Frenchman on the scene, six years later, is Champlain, right? Samuel de Champlain. And he is the founder, formally, of Quebec in 1608. There's some debate about what the name Quebec means. There's a kind of a, a, a French legend that one of his sailors saw that, I don't know if you've ever been to Quebec, it's a beautiful place, you, you, you must go. But uh, the, the cliff comes out and the, you see the high point there of, of, of the cliff and he says, Quebec, what a beak or what a cliff. But actually it's more likely that it's an Indian word meaning uh, the, the point where the, the, the river narrows, right? So that St. Lawrence Seaway narrows down to the river there right at the point of Quebec. I highly recommend you go visit if you have not. It's like going to Europe with, a, you know, a, a, a three-hour plane ride, or, or depending on where you live. Couple of notes. Uh, it, it, France is uh, divided by Huguenots or, or French Protestants, uh, French Calvinists, tension with Catholics, and so also the colony is, and, that, and, and that'll come up a, a little bit. This is the beginning of, or about the time of the Beaver Wars. Uh, they're also called the uh, French and Iroquois Wars, uh, but basically they're wars between the Iroquois League and the Hurons and the Algonquins, who were allied with the French. Uh, the, one of the outcomes of the Beaver Wars is the near genocide, near total genocide of, 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 of the Huron people, and, and we will come to that. Champlain, more so than Cartier, desires the conversion of the native peoples. So he, he is the man who charts the course, you know, pre prepares the way, does the initial colonizing, does the mapping, does the exploring and then makes the call to New France to send two things, French Catholic families, and Father Hezekiah mentioned marriage. You can't have a society without marriage. So French Catholic families, and then of course priests, priests to come to New France. One more quick map. The Iroquois, Iroquois is not a, a people unto itself. It's more like a super tribe, if you will. Um, made up of Mohawks, Seneca, Cayuga, Oneida, Onondaga, and you kind of get a sense where they are. The, the principal drivers of the Iroquois League or the Confederacy of the Iroquois are the, are the Mohawk. The, it, 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 the, the Iroquois League, by some modern historians, is given some credit for influencing Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson as they formulated ideas of American federalism, that's right, right? Uh, uh, sovereign states joined in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a fetus or a fetus, F-E-O-T-U-S, right, a league. My own view is that influence is gravely overstated. Uh, the, the, the men who founded this country politically were influenced, of course, by Enlightenment ideas, but in terms of political structure by, you know, the, the, the Tuscan republics, uh, 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 of the uh, 14th and 15th centuries, for example, and, and the early Roman Republic, 
uh, not so much by the Iroquois League. But nonetheless, a fairly sophisticated political organization, right, the Iroquois League, and central to our story. Okay, the mission to uh, New France. A couple of quick maps here to kind of give you a sense of some of the principal locations in our story, if we can look at the, so we've got uh, the St. Lawrence Valley coming down all the way there to Lake Ontario, uh, takes you all the way over to the Great Lakes into, into Huronia. And, and, we'll, and we'll come back to some of these maps here, but that gives you an idea of the territory that we're talking about. So that's the space. A quick word about the sources. Um, the Jesuit relations are the letters, the reports, the relations, I'm relating something to you, that were written by the Jesuits in the New World, in New France, back to their superior in France. The Jesuit relations make up about 70 volumes, right? A lot. Francis Parkman uh, was a great admirer of the Jesuit relations. And if you don't know Parkman, shame on you. He's the greatest historian that this nation has ever produced. He is something of an anti-Catholic, and yet he acknowledges, uh, though the production of men of scholastic training, they are simple and crude in style, as might be expected of narratives hastily written in Indian lodges or rude mission houses in the forest amid annoyances, interruptions of every kind, smoke in the eyes, for example, in respect to the value of their contents, they are exceedingly unequal. And he, he, describing the Jesuits, we see them in gloomy February, following toil on foot, right? We see them entering, uh, coming into their meeting one after another. We see them entering these wretched abodes of misery and darkness. We must admire the self-sacrificing zeal with which their mission was pursued, writes Parkman. So, I mean, it's, it, it's important to get high praise, to point out high praise here from a man who's skeptical of clericalism, who's skeptical of the Catholic Church. And yet Parkman, he, he could not put these books down. They I mean, they read like, like thriller novels, the, the, the Jesuit relations. And then the last one there, in, in a correspondence to John Gilmary Shea, if you don't know him, again, shame on you, probably the greatest Catholic historian this country has ever produced. But he writes, you know, the more I examine the Jesuit relations, the more I'm impressed with the purity of motive, the devoted self-sacrifice, and the heroism of the early missionaries, some of whom seem to me to fall no whit below the martyrs of the primitive church. And I don't have your point of view, he says, but my testimony to their virtues is no less emphatic than your own. So Parkman was a great fan, and that's very high praise because he was a serious historian. And the conditions under which these men wrote their correspondence back to France uh, is, is, is extraordinary. And the volume of it. I mean, you and I would be thinking about survival under these conditions. Freezing, smoke, vermin, stench. And we'll come to some of this. But in the midst of all that, these men of such capital intellect and iron will informed by the grace of God in their interior lives, are, are, have, have written this extraordinary contribution to history. All right, here are the North American martyrs. Here they are, uh, Goupil, Isaac Jogues, Jean de Lalande, 
Goupil and Lalande were donnés, donné. They were laymen who devoted their work to uh, uh, bound themselves to the uh, to, to the Jesuits, not not canonized priests. Uh, the rest are priests. Daniel Lalemant Brebeuf, Brebeuf, the only one to live past the age of fifty. Chagagnier and Noel Chabanel. In bold, there, Jogues, Brebeuf, Chabanel are the ones that we're going to talk about today. If we talked about all these, this would go on. I mean, they're all great stories. By the way, I didn't even mention, Sophia Institute Press just brought this back into print, Saints of the American Wilderness. Uh, I highly recommend it to you, John A. O'Brien. I have, a, a, it used to be called The American Martyrs. There's my old copy, but they just brought that back. So a, a, a superb book, Saints of the American Wilderness, Sophia Institute Press, right? Uh, very good. So if you don't want to go through all 70 volumes of the Jesuit relations, then there, there you've got it. Okay, a few things about the native population. I, I know it's politically incorrect to say, but these people were savages. They were savages. Uh, promiscuity was rampant. A, a much is made of many of these Indian peoples or native peoples uh, that they were matrilineal, they, they were organized matrilineally, by the way, not matriarch, they were not matriarchies, but they were matrilineal, which means that property would pass down through the, through the, the, the female line, through the mom, through the mother. Um, I'm sorry to say there's a reason for this. It's not politically correct to say it, but when you have a, a, a people of aggressive promiscuity, then, there, then, there's, then that raises doubts about patrimony, if you follow me. And so matrilineal progression is the only way to, you know, everybody for sure knew who, 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 their, who their mother was. So that's why these people were, were mat matrilineal. Um, but anyway, aggressive promiscuity, orgies, uh, constant display of nakedness. This is the sort of world that these Jesuit missionaries lived in. Ritual torture, uh, not just of Jesuit priests, but of one another. Um, an extraordinary lack of hygiene, of basic elements of hygiene. Again, this is a little indelicate, so here's your three seconds to turn this off. So, uh, defecating, urinating inside the longhouses, vermin running around, uh, dogs in, in, and out of the, in and out of the house, defecating and, and, and urinating. In these longhouses, we'll see a picture here in a little bit, maybe 20, 40 people living there, multiple family units all living together, an extraordinary lack of hygiene. By the way, in contrast to the Aztecs about, well, a century earlier, who were extraordinarily uh, hygienic probably more hygienic than, than the Spanish. An appalling diet, you know, eels, occasionally some game, ground cornmeal, things of this nature, heavily influenced by sorcerers, medicine men, shaman, thing, things of this nature. And then, like I say, this sort of life in common in the longhouses. In Mohawks, Hurons, Algonquins, they all sort of lived in these, a bark uh, longhouse fireplace in the middle of the longhouse, uh, and then a hole cut in the roof. Now, I assure you that's not a very effective chimney, so the places would be filled with smoke. And these would be the conditions, the, the Jesuit martyrs went and lived in these conditions 
with these people, you know, in, in, in these longhouses. And so imagine trying to write, write your report for the day on an empty stomach or what it is with, in, 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 with smoke burning your eyes. There are occasions where Isaac Joe has to go outside, but then it's sub-zero temperature and, you know, just to clear his eyes. And so, and so he, can, he can come back in. We did our best in a very short amount of time to give a sense of the age in which this story is taking place and the environment in which it takes place. And this is something that I've said before, I know for Institute lectures, and it sounds kind of silly to say it, but events in history take place at certain times and places in history. <laughs> and well, yeah, of course, right? But often we try to uh, impose our own understanding of the world on events that have happened in the past. And then we come out with a defective understanding of what has taken place. And, and that, so that's why I say events in history take place at times and places in history. And, and, the, and the more effort that we make to get our imaginations around them, and it's always going to be imperfect because we're not shivering in the cold right now with smoke in our eyes, eating eels. But we have to try in our mind to get a sense of this so that we can appreciate the world that these men were, were operating in and, and what they achieved. Okay, so the, the mission to New France, uh, Champlain calls this uh, mission. And uh, the, the first people that France sends to New France to Canada, to Quebec, are Franciscans. Are, well, they become Franciscans. Uh, OFM, uh, or Orders of Friar Minor, uh, the Recollette Fathers. And they are unsuccessful. And I mean, this is not a criticism of them. I, I would have been unsuccessful. But the Franciscans make some effort to penetrate, especially into the Hurons, there's a common belief that the Hurons are the most likely for evangelization, the most fertile ground for evangelization. But the Franciscans are, are, are not successful. They make some effort to learn the language, but not the effort that the Jesuits eventually will make. Here's a quick example. The Huron language, in many ways very complex, has cases, has genders, but it lacked certain words, expressions necessary for the imparting of Christian theology. The Franciscans, though they make a stab at learning the Huron language, the Recollet Fathers, I should call them more correctly, the Recollet Fathers, they become, they, they get, they're, they're added into the Franciscans about a century later. They make an effort to learn the Huron language, a good effort, but in some cases, instead of looking for the expression in the Huron language to convey that theological idea, they use English or French or Latin words. And, and so, the, so their effectiveness is limited. The Jesuits, as you will see with Jean de Brebeuf especially, make a much more concerted effort to make use of that Huron language. I'll give you a quick example. So in the Huron language, relatives, father, mother, aunt, cousin, sister, brother, are always referred to 
in the possessive, my father, your brother, his wife, right, his cousin. So this creates a difficulty in the formula for the sign of the cross, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Brebeuf, who spends three years mastering this language, not even, becoming facile in it anyway. So he writes back to the Jesuit superiors in France. Can I use this formula? May I use this formula? In the name of our father and his son and their Holy Spirit, which actually theologically has considerable amount of merit to it, right? So just an example there of the, of the, of the effort that the Jesuits made, especially break both with the language, and then also in contrast to, we'll come to this a little bit, but in contrast to Protestant missionaries, uh, men from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, for example, John Elliott, they, they don't go and live among the Hurons or the natives, right? But the Jesuits do. So this is the first thing. There's a great quote from Bebeuf. It's something like, if you want to impress an Indian, you know, pick up a paddle, right? Or be prepared to drag that canoe across the portage. But this is what these men did. And, and I, I'm sorry to go over this and, and say it over again, but I can't underscore it sufficiently. These men were intellectual giants, and yet they lived lives of extraordinary physical hardship. Our age doesn't produce men like this. It doesn't. It doesn't. So anyway, a little bit of background there. So the, uh, the crossing would take about three months, sometimes two, maybe four, depending on the winds. We're talking about a ship, a French frigate at this time, 140 feet maybe. In contrast, you know, the, the Titanic is over 800 feet, and then a modern cruise ship, we're well into the thousands. So a, a, a ship that could, you know, maybe fit in this room, well, not quite, but small, a small ship, all right? Less than half a football field. So they settle in Quebec, and then the plan under Champlain is to take the gospel to the Hurons, and they begin to penetrate into the interior. When the Jesuits arrive in Quebec, they are, uh, we mentioned the tensions between the Huguenots and the Catholics. So this reveals itself the commandant of the settlement. And by the way, we're talking about, you know, fewer than 200 people. So take out of your mind, if you've been to Quebec, what the city looks like today. We're, we're talking about a stockade on a cliff on the St. Lawrence River. The commandant of the settlement, Emery de Caen, harasses Brebeuf when he's trying to get off the boat. He says, let me see your papers. What evidence do you have that you're supposed to come here? The Recollet fathers who are already there intervene. Although their home is very small, they bring the Jesuits in to live with them. Brebeuf spends a winter uh, with some local Indians on a hunting party. 
This is something of a baptism the Montaigne, Montaignes. Uh, this is something of a baptism of fire for him. He starts to realize that he has to master their language. They tease him a great deal. They teach him obscenities. But he also earns their respect because he's willing to do and endure the hardship. He's willing to do the things they do and endure the hardships that they endure. He writes a quick little grammar of their language. And by the way, when we say language here, we're not talking about anything remotely within our imaginations. This is not a, this is not a, a Latinate language. It's not a romance language. Uh, it, it, and, and even in the, in the, in the, in the, in the diction, the way that they, he, he, Brebeuf writes about, I can't shape my mouth. I can't make my lips do what they do. I can't make the noise in the throat, I, the whistle, the click, all these sorts of things. So it is a long, long process. But why does, is he putting up with this? Why is he enduring this? Because he wants to baptize these people and bring them to Jesus Christ. And we'll come back to that as well. So after his winter with the local tribe, it's agreed that he's going to go into the Huron Nation, well, well into the Great Lakes region. He lives among the Hurons for three years. And largely, he's silent. Now imagine the loneliness. He has, doesn't have a Jesuit to talk to. Or another, occasionally he sees a, a French fur trader. But in the main, he's living the Huron life. And we've had some description of what that life was like. And he is silently studying their language under these most difficult conditions that we've described. So for three years, he has not even baptized an adult. Baptizes infants in danger of death and adults in danger of death. But the, catech the catechesis has not even begun. We have to think about this very hard. Three years, I'm trying to bring people to Jesus Christ, but for three years I have to learn their language. So the, the, the patience and the love, which is really what underscores all of this. He comes back to Quebec. He's begun work on his catechism. And by the way, this isn't a catechism that the Hurons are gonna read. They don't have a written language. So he has to devise a written language for them, but it's a catechism that his subsequent Jesuit missionaries can use. And he writes a grammar book and a catechism of the, of the Huron, in the Huron language, or what he devises as the written representation of the Huron language. And we go back, this is why I dwell on this so much, these men were masters of language. Greek, Latin, linguistics, what we call linguistics today, French, Italian. These men were, and this facility and the training of the mind that that Jesuit formation brings them makes it possible for a man like Brebeuf to do this. Now, I will also say that in my estimation, and this is just my, my sense, I think Brebeuf was something of a genius to have been able to do what, what he did with the Huron life. So he returns to France with Champlain in 1629. 
quick historical note here. There's a brief period during which Quebec is lost to the English or the Scots, right? It's the Kirk brothers who drive the French out of Quebec. They are restored to Quebec with the Treaty of Saint-Germain. And then Cardinal Richelieu, uh, if you've read The Three Musketeers, you know he's the bad guy, but actually a man of considerable talent and capacity. He's the man who drives recolonization back to New France. So, okay, that's kind of where we are in Quebec. Brebeuf, I should have mentioned earlier his nickname among the Hurons is Etchon, which means the one who carries the load, because very early in his relationship with the Hurons, he demonstrates his willingness to do everything that they did. We're gonna portage that canoe, uh, I'm gonna paddle, I'm gonna do everything that you're doing. So they welcome him back in 1634 at the end of the summer. Why there is that, Sean, come back again, my nephew, my brother, my cousin. You have finally come back to us, the Huron chief tells him. And then, my friends, he lives among the Hurons for the next 23 years. This is his life. I'm not, he, he sees Jesuits from time to time. They're, they're coming out. He's sending them in different places. Uh, but in the main, he's alone. He's alone among the Hurons. He writes his grammar. He continues to refine his catechism. I had just had this little note here at the bottom of this handout. Contrast the total self-giving of the intellect of Brebeuf in the service of Jesus Christ and the conversion of souls to his contemporary, the, 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 the complete self-doubter, also Jesuit trained, René Descartes, René Descartes, who is looking at himself, right? Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Co constant looking at self, Brebeuf, complete contrast, looking out at these savages whom he loves, whom he loves. As new Jesuits come in, this is how he advises them, and this is an excerpt from his speech. Instead of being a great theologian, a great scholar, you must reckon on being here a humble student. And what masters, women, little children, all savages, and exposed to what laughter, to what mocking. So that humility that's formed among the Jesuits, they need. The Huron language will be your St. Thomas and your Aristotle. Clever men as you are and speaking glibly among learned and capable persons, you must make up your minds to be mute for a long time among the barbarians. And if you begin to stammer, you will have accomplished much at the end of a little time. What a contrast from the intellectual life that these men left behind. And then also the perpetual threat our lives depend upon a single thread, he tells his fellow Jesuits. We are told to expect death every hour and to be prepared for it, no matter where we are in the world. So the Jesuits are always prepared for death, but no matter where we are in the world, that applies here particularly. The malice of the savages gives a special cause 
for perpetual fear. A malcontent may burn you or cleave your head open in some lonely spot. We are responsible for the sterility or the fecundity of the earth. If it doesn't rain, it's our fault, right? If we cannot make it rain, they speak of murdering us. It is to souls like yours that God has appointed the conquest of many souls. And here, fear no difficulties. There will be none for you since it is your whole consolation to see yourself crucified with the Son of God. So this is the understanding of the world with which the Jesuits enter this work. And in fact, that is, after 23 years, what happens to Jean de Rebeuf. And so here's a summary of this man's martyrdom. And remember, we talked about the Beaver Wars. So they're at the peak of their aggression. The Iroquois are moving into Huron lands. The Beaver Wars, the invasions have reached the peak of their fury. During one such raid, in the middle of March, Father Jean de Brebeuf and his young colleague, Father Gabriel Lallemont, have just finished saying the divine office. They're captured in a raid in the mission village of Saint Louis. The Hurons, Christians now, who did not escape the raid, were slaughtered. Their skulls split by the tomahawks of Seneca and Mohawk Indians. Those spared the tomahawk, women, children, sick, elderly, are burned to death as Iroquois set fire to the Huron longhouses. They bind Brebeuf and Lallemont along with other Huron Christians. The Iroquois lead them to the neighboring village of San Ignace, which they had also burned and pillaged near present Midland, Ontario. That's where the martyr's shrine is in Midland, on the southeastern end of the Georgian Bay, the, on the east side of Lake Huron. They're stripped naked. The priests, along with the Huron Sons of Christ, are now subjected to an ordeal of torture. First, they are made to run the gauntlets with shrieks, and whoops, Mohawk and Seneca braves beat the priests with clubs, while others prepare the fire around the torture posts. Next, they are confined to a cabin that Brebeuf himself had built with the hope that one day it was going to be a church. The Christians, Huron, and Jesuits console one another. The priests rally their brethren, raising their hands in absolution. Brebeuf and his Huron companions are selected for torture. First, they break his fingers. They pull the fingernails out, and then women and children gnaw on the ends of his fingers. Next, they drag him to the post and they fasten him to it. Brebeuf kisses the post, the instrument of his martyrdom. 
Next, the savages set burning sticks at his feet, and they take torches, and they run them up and down his flesh, up and down his body, between his legs, around his neck, under his armpits. The saint's flesh begins to blister, but he makes no cry. His calm demeanor, both infuriated and impressed his torturers. So they slash his flesh with knives. And all the while to his Huron sons, he says, who are enduring the same tortures, my sons, my brothers, let us lift up our eyes to heaven in our affliction. Let us remember that God is the witness to our afflictions. And very soon, he will be our exceedingly great reward. Let us die in our faith. Let us hope in him the fulfillment of his promises to us. I have more pity for you than I have for myself. Bear up with courage the few torments remaining. The suffering will end with our lives. The glory that awaits us will never have an end. As the Mohawks stab him with the heads of spears, he repeats aloud, Jesus, have mercy on us. And his Huron brothers echo his words. To silence this giant of a priest, the savages cut off his lower lip. And then they take a hot poker and they thrust it down his throat into his esophagus. And still he makes no cry. So they bring out his young companion, Father Gabriel Lalemont, who is stripped naked. And around his waist, they tie a girdle of pine bark. We are made a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men, shouts the young priest, using the words of St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Lelemont is tied to the stake alongside Brebeuf, and the Mohawks set fire to the pine bark girdle. Around Brebeuf's neck, the Mohawks have fastened a necklace of tomahawk heads that they had heated red hot in the fire, three in the front and three in the back, so that if he leans forward, right, to relieve the pain on his chest, then his back is scalded. And if he leans back, right, to relieve the pain on his back, then his chest is burned. But what does he say? Jesus have mercy on us. The Indians, in their diabolical frenzy, they're infuriated they can't break this priest. They tie around him a girdle of pine bark, and they set it afire. And now, very much breaking Brebo's heart, traitorous Hurons, the very people to whom he had given his whole priesthood, pour boiling water, over his head in a mockery of baptism. They say, Etchan, sneering, we baptize you that you may be happy in heaven, for no one can be saved without a good baptism. You told us about suffering. You should be happy 
that we are making you suffer. Next, his torturers cut strips of flesh from his legs and they ate them as he watched. Hoping, of course, to obtain his extraordinary courage. Brebeuf, he prays aloud for his torturers. Then they cut off his nose, and then they cut off his upper lip, and then his tongue. And then they shove a torch into his mouth, and they gouge out his eyes. They drag him to a platform where they cut off his feet, they scalp him, and then they tear open his chest, and they rip out his heart, and they eat it. Then they drink his blood, hoping again to obtain the courage of the saints. Then a blow from a tomahawk cuts the face in two. Father Lelemont, his young companion, they slowly torture throughout the night, being sure not to kill him, only to bring him to the brink of death and then to back off. At dawn, they cut out his tongue, they gouge out his eyes, shove them with hot coals into the sockets, and then they cut off his hands and his feet. And yet, the young priest's heart continues to beat. And so the Iroquois were determined to have his courage as well. So they cut off flesh from him, they eat it, they drink his blood, they tear open his chest, rip out his heart, and they eat that. L'Elemont, there was doubt among his superiors whether he had the constitution for the life of a missionary in New Canada, whether he was sufficiently physically fit for the rigors of New France. This man endured 16 hours of torture before the angel met him with the crown of martyrdom. Saint Jean de Brebeuf and Saint Lalemont pray for us. Isaac Jogue, whom the Huron called Ondesank, which means bird of prey or the indomitable one. Isaac Jogue penetrates his way all the way in to Susamari, uh, or what translate the rapids of St. Mary, right? Today, what uh, they, they call the Sioux. This man preaches the gospel a thousand miles into the interior before I mentioned John Eliot, the so-called apostle to the Indians from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, five miles from the Boston Harbor. He arrives in Quebec in 1636. He's the first priest to come to New Amsterdam, Manhattan Island, we'll come to that. And he's the first to die for Jesus Christ. So here's the area that he operates in. Huronia, of course, Samarie, Ihonateria is the little island. It's called St. Joseph's Island today. You see St. Ignace there, where Lalemont and Brebeuf were martyred. Not quite a thousand miles, more like three, you know, 750 miles from Quebec. So from the, from the coast, I guess you could say a thousand miles in, into Samarie. So this is, the op this is the area in which uh, he is operating. In 1642, I, Isaac Job 
accompanies a Huron expedition. He, he, he's working among the Indians. That area, in summary, is the center of Jesuit activity spreading out to the Hurons. In 1642, he accompanies a Huron expedition back to Quebec. And on the way, he is taken prisoner by the Mohawks downriver from uh, uh, Three Rivers. So ha about halfway between Three Rivers and Quebec. St. Isaac Jogues serves the life of a slave for more than a year among the Mohawks. The first several weeks of his life is again one of brutal torture, running the gauntlet like we've discussed. His fingers are maimed. Uh, there's an Algonquin woman uh, who's a, sympathetic to him who is forced to saw off his thumb using a sort of a jagged shell, a jagged shell. She refuses, but <clears throat> if she won't do it, they threaten to kill him. Uh, they, they saw off his thumb. He picks it up and offers it, you know, to our Lord. And then in time, he's adopted by a Mohawk family, and he basically becomes their slave. And he does the most, the most menial work, uh, the gathering of firewood, for example, and this sorts of thing. So this intellectual giant, this uh, spiritual giant uh, is, is, is subdued to the most demeaning life that you can imagine for um, about a year, a little less than a year and a half. And yet, and here's a quote, and yet in the time that he's there, his concern is not for himself, but for the people whom he is bringing the gospel to. And he's baptizing sick Mohawk infants and dying Mohawks. It is a cruel thing to bear that the, the, the triumph of demons over whole nations redeemed with so much love and paid for in the money of a blood so adorable. So Isaac Joe sees the Mohawks descended in such diabolical savagery. He is gravely abused by them for a year and a half, a little less than a year and a half, mutilated by them, humiliated by them. And his concern is that these people are in the control of the devil. Isaac Jogue is ransomed by the Dutch, Dutch traders. Uh, they take him to Manhattan. He's the first priest to set foot on Manhattan Island, right? And then he returns to France. And that's the story that we began with this evening, the French priest first making his way to Cornwall on the sailing vessel and then down to northern France. And Isaac Jogue, of course, that the young family that fed him breakfast after Christmas mass, the young girls knew about him, knew who he was because of these Jesuit relations, because these stories had come back to France. And so all of France knew about the extraordinary exploits of these men. So he returns to New France, and yet, as we talked about at the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the talk, his desire is to go back because of his love, his perfect love for the Indians to whom he's trying to bring the sacraments. So he returns to New France. He is again among the Hurons. We talked about those beaver wars, avoiding the complexities of the politics here. There's a, there's a, there's a meeting. He's attempting to negotiate the uh, peace 
between Huron and Iroquois. He is lured into a longhouse. He knows what's coming. He's tomahawked to the skull and he dies. In fact, if you look at this map here, Osernanon, it's called what today? Ariesville. That's where the shrine to the martyrs in America is. So there, there, there are two shrines. One is up in Ontario, right, where uh, uh, Brebeuf is, and then down here where, uh, where Jogues is in Oriville, right? And then finally, just very quickly, Noel Chabanel. Chabanel, I think, has, has something for, for us because his heroism, his sacrifice, uh, it, 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 I think in many ways is easier for all of us to uh, identify with. Chabanel found living among the Hurons utterly repulsive. And all of us would too. Well, I mean, not, maybe not all of us listening. I know that I would, right? Some of these conditions that I've described. He found it utterly repulsive. And, he, and, and his constitution was such... He, he, he was perpetually distracted, perpetually put off, perpetually driven away by the savage behavior of the, of the native peoples of New France. The excrement, the dirt, the stench, the public fornication, or copulation. Uh, I mean, fornication suggests that there's a knowledge of the sin. The, 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 the disgusting diets. He, so he had a very difficult time bearing this. And the Jesuit relations of him writes, he could not adjust himself to the customs of the country, nor to the life of the missions, which were so radically opposed to his natural inclinations, as they would be to ours. And was for him all suffering without any consolation, he had always to lie on the bare ground, to live from morning to night in a little hell of smoke and in places that were often filled with snow in the morning. The snow came in from the Indian cabins on every side to live in these dwellings with vermin, filled with vermin, where each sense had its own taste, eyesight, smell, hearing, touch, had its own daily torture. He never had pure water, with which to quench his thirst. And by the way, this describes the life of all of these Jesuit missionaries. He had to eat the page of Indian corn boiled in water. He worked incessantly underfed. Not a single moment of privacy, no bedroom of his own, no office, no study, no light other than the smoky fire. Animals crawling over him, right? Children crawling over him, a congested room where everything was washed, cooked, ate. So this is the life that all of these men live, and yet St. Noel Chavanel found it particularly difficult to deal with. And yet, constantly he is thinking, and he attributes this to the promptings of the devil, and it may or may not have been, you know, Father Chavanel, you were a man of great intellect. You were a man that could be doing very good work for seminarians, for the young of France to share the cross, to share the gospel. Why 
are you subjecting yourself to this impossible life? There's no shame in returning to France. And Chabanel makes a vow to stay in the midst of it and continue to preach the gospel to the Hurons. His martyrdom is quick. Again, split through the skull. He's the youngest and the last to die of the eight. But I am particularly impressed by him because I think he's the easiest of these men to relate to because all the things that he, we, 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 we make the mistake often of thinking of saints as men who have some kind of extraordinary capacity that they have no temptation. They don't feel the things that we feel. In fact, they very much do. And they feel them very deeply. And in spite of that, with the grace of God, overcomes them and serves our Lord. So some things to take away here. Well, first of all, inconvenience. I hope the next time that you're inconvenienced, which will be sometime before the end of tonight, <laughs> right? Or when you're getting on an airplane tomorrow or whatever it is, that you think about the lives of the North American martyrs and you can say, my goodness, what I'm feeling right now is nothing. It's nothing, right? And I offer it up. And I say, right, Jean de Brebeuf, help me offer up this little inconvenience that I'm suffering. Because alongside what you endured for souls, for Christ, I can have this inconvenience. I can have this inconvenience. Practical tolerance. You know, the church makes the distinction between dogmatic tolerance, which is basically saying you're right and I'm right. You say A, I say not A, but we're both right. The church rejects this kind of tolerance, which is the tolerance of our age, right? We're supposed to tolerate all kinds of bad behaviors and say they're all good or they're just different. But the church does exercise a kind of practical tolerance so that she can bring souls to our Lord. And this is, the, the Jesuits are an example par excellence of this practical tolerance, right? They endure for many years the savagery of the natives of New France and their exceedingly debased behaviors so that they can, in time and in patience, bring them in to the church. These men were the best and the brightest. And this is something that's in human nature in our age. So if we're going to go extract oil from Saudi Arabia, uh, or, or we're going to send people to the moon, or we're going to devise some extraordinary microchip that do, does something. We, we, our best and brightest pursue that work. But there was an age, my friends, not so long ago, when the best and brightest of Christian civilization were devoted to what? To bringing souls to Jesus Christ. Right? That's what the best and the brightest did. So this, this impulse, this desire to send the best and the brightest, right? that's still in us. But our motives are totally different. It's to make mountains of money, discover new technologies, but not to bring souls to Jesus Christ. But there was this age, because we marvel at this. These men were brilliant men. I'm repeating myself, but I drive this point home. 
These men were brilliant men, and yet they were devoted to this. I mean, going to the moon is not, it does not give us a sufficient sense of what these men endured crossing the Atlantic and living in the conditions that they did. Why? To bring the gospel, to bring baptism to these peoples. And indeed, appreciation of baptism. You read through these Jesuit relations or summaries of them, and Jogues and Brebeuf are baptizing under the most extreme circumstances. They're melting snow so that they can baptize, or they've been in the rain and they're wringing the rain out of their cassocks, right, or their robes to baptize. Why? Because they knew. What we take for granted, ask yourself, do you know the day that you were baptized on? Everybody listening knows the day he or she was born on. Do you know the day you were baptized on? So if you don't, go find out after this lecture, because that's the day to celebrate. Please call this back into your attention. And think of these men knew they had to bring baptism to these people so that they would not be lost. The faith of the Hurons. And, and these are Christians whose names we will never know. We'll learn them on the other side of the veil, perhaps. But the, the faith of the Hurons and the Huron people deserve our admiration. Because of Kirk from across the sea come these men. And the Hurons are exterminated, largely, by the Iroquois. And many of them, many of the Hurons, are martyrs. The zeal for souls... It's effortless for us to evangelize. I know Father Hezekiah, after Easter, when he's in the grocery store, he's telling the checkout girl, Christ is risen. It's so easy to start a conversation with somebody. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. It's so easy, even with a stranger. Think of the effort to evangelize that these men made. My friends, it is seven years before Brebeuf baptizes an adult Huron because he has to learn the language. He has to catechize. He has to be certain that adult consents. Seven years before his first baptism of a healthy adult. So that... That zeal for souls, and I'm just suggesting to you, ramp it up a little bit in your life to evangelize. And, it, and you don't have to be an apologist like Tim Staples or Father Hezekiah or Jimmy Aiken, but you do need to let people know that Jesus Christ loves them, right? And you don't have to get on a, on a 135-foot ship and endure the Atlantic Ocean for three months and then live in squalid conditions in sub-zero temperatures to do it. So think of this next time you have an opportunity and your guardian angel prompts you and says, hey, let that person know that Jesus loves him or her. Where's our zeal for souls? And then of course related to this and undergirding it, these men did what? They acted out of love of God. Let all our actions be done out of love of God. This quote here, I have two, I'll finish with, from John. 
These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Love one another, my commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if, if you do what I command you. These Indians were the friends of these Jesuits, these Jesuit martyrs, and they did, in fact, lay down their life for them. And informed they were by this passage in Galatians, this next one. I have been crucified. This is, this, this, this is we could say, the, the motto of the Jesuit martyrs. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no, no longer I who live. The only way this story makes sense, my friends, is this passage in Galatians. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That, my friends, that's the Jesuit martyrs. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.